I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from, say, her name and COVID, to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. January 20th was a day of historic first. Joe Biden was sworn in as the oldest man to become president the first to do so after a failed attempt by an outgoing president to foment a coup, and the first to do so on a day that 4,400 Americans died of a disease, a disease that's grown out of control by a shockingly incompetent chief executive. And then there's Kamala Harris, who became the first black woman, the first South Asian woman, and the first HBCU graduate to become vice president of the United States. Harris took office wearing head-to-toe purple as homage to Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to run for president. And in taking her oath, Harris pledged on two Bibles, one belonging to the late Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and the other passed down from Regina Shelton, a black woman deemed the matriarch of the Harris family. Now, this history-making didn't stop there. The nation was simply riveted by Amanda Gorman, whose words acknowledging the dreams of black girls descending from slavery and raised by single moms resonated ever more profoundly given the gift that black women organizers in Georgia had delivered to this administration, a democratically controlled Senate. The sighs of relief have already directed the inauguration's energy into a back-to-the-future sensibility, a belief that all will be good if we can just make it back to where we were before. If nothing else, the events of January 6th make it clear that going back to before makes no more sense than returning to the same level of security around the Capitol after those would-be revolutionaries were politely escorted out. And while we recognize that representation alone can't guarantee liberation, We also know that Kamala Harris's ascension to the vice presidency marks the first time that black women who for so long have been the wheels of the Democratic Party bus have gotten a glimpse of the driver's seat. So what would it mean then for a presidential administration to transform this symbolic moment into meaningful, tangible change for black women? How might activating an intersectional political agenda steer us to a different place, not back to a future that mirrors the past, but onwards to a more just one? How do we hold this administration accountable? How do we cultivate the political vigilance that's necessary to resist some of the calls for appeasement that we're beginning to hear already? With all of these questions on our hearts, we knew that we needed to have another from the base to the face coffee clatch with the sisterhood. As our regular listeners know, we first convened the series last summer. It was a roundtable featuring representatives Presley and Lee and state's attorney Kim Fox. We came together again after Kamala Harris delivered her history-making convention speech and then again for a third time 
after the vice presidential debate. This time, we gathered 24 hours after the inauguration. We wanted to offer immediate impressions and to chart a path forward. Joining me for this conversation were Kim Fox, a progressive prosecutor and the first African-American state's attorney for Cook County, Kirsten Westavalli, Senior Director of Content at I1 Digital, Barbara Arnwine, Voting Rights Champion, and the President and Founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition, and Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, Founder and President of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. I began by asking each of the panelists to offer their initial reactions to the inauguration. What did they see that they would forever associate with this moment in history? Well, to get into that, I wanted to know what one word best encapsulated how they were feeling at that moment. Kirsten Westavalli kicked things off. One word, one word. Determined. Because what we're seeing already is kind of this the numbing effects of gradualism and the numbing effects of uh, representation and the numbing effects of pomp and circumstance. And so it just made me want to double down and make sure I do my part in the next four years to be disruptive in that narrative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Barbara. Wow. I had so many conflicting uh, emotions. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem with this question because you got to choose one of them. Right. And I, you know, the day before it was glee. Yeah. Uh, when I finally saw uh, Biden getting on the plane and, you know, it was the face of the black people who were working on the tarmac that made me just get gleeful mm -hmm. because of their joy. Because, see, one thing that black people know is that we made all of this happen. Everything that everybody's talking about celebrating is the result of not just one election but of decades and centuries of Blacks fighting for political empowerment and Black women leading the way. Uh, so I think if you have me sum it up into one uh, word, the word is appreciation. I love me some Black folks. I love that. I love that. Um, Kim. So it's so good to be back with all of you, especially today. I'm like Barbara. I have a million different words popping through my head. And I'm going to land on, and it's just for the moment, vindication. Vindication for the Black women who were in these years and this time leading up to this dismissed, disqualified, attacked to get to the moment where we were and whether it was the way that, you know, Vice President Harris was treated on the campaign trail and how in the final months of her time, the press treated her so poorly or Stacey Abrams having an election stolen from her only for that work to lead to the historic Senate race that shifted the power to Michelle with her hair laid like in that big belt coming down the stairs, like get this house back. Um, and we know that the backlash of the Obama administration is what, you know, empowered and emboldened folks to be able to, to feel like they could literally scale the walls to hold on to white supremacy in response to what was there. And so like seeing uh, the former first lady, seeing Vice President Harris, seeing 
Amanda Gorman and the history that she stood on was a temporary moment of vindication for the abuses that we have suffered in the attempts to make this republic um, live up to its aspirations. So that's what I felt in that moment. And, and, and again, the work is here for today, but today it was like, you tried us and here we are. Yes, yes, absolutely. Joya. You can leave up that beautiful picture of Amanda Corbin because that's my word, optimism. Seeing that sister with her beautiful yellow coat and listening to her talk on the words of um, the future and also honoring the racism and being able to talk about the history of us being um, not seen as fully valuable and not listened to and uh, the weathering, right? Like she brought all of that and I see in her the future of Black women brilliance. Like I'm not worried that we're gonna suddenly retrench because I see that she has, and the people of her generation are boldly pushing further than what even what the work that I do, the work that we all do on this panel. So I left feeling optimistic about seeing her face, seeing her up there and knowing she's this moment and people who see her, see themselves and what they're gonna build and break down these walls and build a better future. So beautiful, so poised. And, and she captured just so, so many of the understated things, all the things we were thinking. Um, during the inauguration. So we want to come back um, in a moment, but um, we do have to talk about, you know, the fact that the inauguration almost didn't happen. Um, and uh, I watched as uh, the vice president, the new vice president escorted the departing vice president down the stairs and into his car. And I just was like thinking, Mike Pence, what are you thinking? Your boss basically stood by while a crowd was trying to find you to kill you. And your loyalty or whatever it is, you know, ran uh, so deep that you, you couldn't do the right thing at the end of the day. Are you gonna be the stand-in for the fear or whatever it is that makes so many members of that party uh, look deep into the abyss and just step right into it. I was just overtaken with what to feel about him, what to think about what it means and worry that we don't really have a conversation going on at the level that it should be about what that thing was that happened, where it came from and where does it go now? So. I want to ask each of you what your thoughts are about the pivot that's happening in real time from uh, we celebrate yesterday and we celebrate it under a narrative that we are better than that thing that happened two weeks ago and we proved it. And so that's just sort of a, you know, a blip or a wrinkle. How does the possibility that this may emerge as the, you know, the epigraph from this event strike each of you. So Barbara, I'll, I'll come to you first about that, um, partly because um, there were plenty of people, including Maxine Waters, who were really concerned about precisely this happening. I mean, first of all, come on, everybody. Uh, you know, if you're on social media, as I am, uh, you know, in Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, they said they were going to storm the Capitol. QAnon, their whole theory is what they call the storm. The storm is taking over the Capitol in a violent manner, assassinating members of Congress. So how in the world 
when my Twitter is blowing up with all of their talking about the, how they're going to take over, what they're going to do, who they're going to kill, how they're going to, uh, you know, take over the streets, how people better not come out. You black folks better stay home. All this nonsense. How in the hell do they then get on national TV and say that they had no idea? Now, Maxine Waters, like me and like all of us, is also on social media and she picked it up. She heard about it. She saw the same thing I was seeing and everybody else was seeing. And she had two meetings with the chief of the Capitol Police Sund, and she raised her concerns, not once, but twice. She had two different hour long telephone conversations with him. And she said, this is urgent. And he told her, don't worry your pretty little head. That's basically what he said. We are going to take care of this. She said, I am worried if they said it, you know, you can't let them get to the plaza. What are your strategies for barricading, for making sure that they don't overwhelm you getting into the plaza? Oh, we got that taken care of. No problem, no problem, no problem. Just stop. What, what, what you making the mistake? What, what, how do you analyze what was going on there? I don't think any of this was accidental. I believe that when the story is told, when the whole truth comes out, we're going to find out that it goes all the way back to people at the Department of Defense, all the way back to people at the White House, all the way back to people at DOJ. I believe that there was coordination here. I believe it was not an accident. You saw the big reveal that Charles Flynn, who is the brother of Mike Flynn, was in the room when they were uh, when they denied the request six times to send police, uh, military, the National Guard to the Capitol, he was in the room, part of the decision making, and which the army denied for weeks, weeks, and finally, I guess somebody had too much proof. They admitted it. So I just you know I want people to be very clear: there was a real attempted coup. It's just that they had such a stupid ragtag army trying to execute it. And there were clearly conflicts within you know, these units, so they couldn't fully execute it. But let's be very clear. This was no accident. This was not oversight. This was not poor planning. This was deliberate. And I look forward to the whole Congress holding these folks accountable. And you know what, what concerns me, I, I certainly hope it, it does come out. What really concerns me is that now that everything is being politicized from, from the right, that the same sentiments that allowed the majority of the Republicans, after they were cowering in a room for hours because of this lie, to go right back into the chambers and, and vote to authorize effectively this lie. That the same thing that it was at play there maybe at play at if we do find out that there was higher level involvement and there was congressional involvement let's be clear and this all comes out there's going to be members of congress who also played a role here uh and, and i'm talking about those who gave people tours that were banned by the way they were illegal you weren't supposed to have any tours because of covid who were giving them, you know, tours of the underground passageways where they escape. Uh, so let's uh, let's be clear. 
So on, on this note, I, I want to go to State's Attorney Fox um, on the law enforcement issue. So the, the media was aghast at the idea that there were law enforcement uh, personnel involved in this. Initially, uh, shocked that they were part of the crowd. And I, I would imagine that even still, there are those who doubt whether there were any people who were on duty who were part of this, mostly outsiders or whatever. But what does this, this shock about the, the fact that law enforcement might be involved in breaking the law in this way tell us about the level of awareness about the current state of white supremacy and and lawlessness among some law enforcement personnel? I would say that that's a real privilege um, to have been shocked by that, that 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 comes from a place of privilege that you would be amazed that the people who are engaged in law enforcement, that there is a segment that doesn't hold white supremacist misogynistic values. And I will tell you, I watched this thing unfold in real time. And it wasn't until the next morning that I woke up in beads of sweat, just could not get myself together from a post-traumatic stress disorder response from when two years ago, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police led by the now president of the Fraternal Order of Police stood outside my office under the auspices of not liking the decision that I made, protesting in, in mass. The head of the FOP now standing with members of QAnon. I didn't know who QAnon was two years ago. The Proud Boys, before the Proud Boys became the household name that it is now, were standing out in front of my office and they were calling for my head. They were using such disgusting rhetoric, taking my picture, rubbing it on their genitalia. And what I saw at that protest, I immediately went to friends and colleagues who I knew were in that house who knew that they would be targeted, thinking what would happen if they had gotten up on that elevator and were coming for me because they were explicit. And they were explicit two years ago. And they were not hiding. This was not a like, oh, I'm surprised. This was law enforcement coming after the prosecutor. And so the day after this, you know, where the police union chief defends the behavior says that, you know, and this is a person who is <laughs> unapologetic in his rhetoric around policies, my policies related to justice reform, calling Black people thugs, saying that these are people of broken households, that in the wake of my office not prosecuting peaceful protesters, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, was calling for my head, would watch this mob scale walls with zip ties, um, have nooses out front, and defend those actions. For me, it was, I was like, it must be nice to have your world shattered, to believe that those that you put in these positions are here to protect law and order. It became abundantly clear to me when I watched, and some thought it was controversial on my personal social media pages to say, this was an inside job. And I know this because I get intelligence, I get information on Monday, the Monday before, so I guess that was the fourth, I got an alert that they were gonna make an announcement in the Jacob Blake case in Kenosha that week. I don't live in Kenosha, I live in Illinois, but they had enough foresight to say that if this was a decision and they knew what the decision was going to be, that they wanted to make law enforcement aware of the possibility of some type of action. That was Monday related to Jacob Blake. 
You mean to tell me, as Barbara just said, for weeks they had been talking about making something happen on the 6th. President Trump himself said the day would be wild. I find it unfathomable that people didn't know. And I, again, as someone in law enforcement who gets alerts, who, who say that this is gonna happen, they are not hiding. It is our choice to put our hands in front of our eyes and our ears. It is our choice to defend the notion and not the practice. The notion of policing being fair and just and that those people who are mad about these singular instances of black death, like that's not the issue. It is a broader issue. And that I think this illustrated it in a way that all the protests, all the things that we've seen for years couldn't have. It was unfathomable. And as someone, again, who's been on the other side of that, who saw that, who saw the QAnon and Proud Boy connection with the Fraternal Order of Police and the same man who wearing a Trump jersey stood with them, would defend this. It was traumatizing and speaks to, and I hope that there will be hearings, that there will be not just kind of a dismissiveness of who those folks were, but this particular set we have to have hearings related to. And there's, there's so much in, in this moment that helps to make the point that the traditional frame that gets thrown back at us whenever we protest, we get the law and order argument, right? It's all about law and order. It's about authority. This is a moment where, you know, rarely it is abundantly clear that it's not about police authority, it's not about law authority, it's about white authority. Like when those protesters said to the police officers, you should be with us, you work for us. Um, that's a clear moment that people are revealing what they think the police are for. It's the order that's grounded on, on white supremacy, which we know is part of the deep history of policing, but it's, it's rare that you get such a vivid illustration of it. When you compare the, the Capitol being surrounded by the National Guard when it's peaceful protesters and, you know, Keystone cops when it's people coming to bring down the Republic. I mean, that kind of asymmetry, it, it's, it's hard not to read it. You have to want to not to read it. But that is the question, right? Do people you know, want to read it for what's there. Um, so I want to ask you, Joya, to, to say something about how you read it, having been in D.C. during one of the protests, seeing the dramatically disproportionate response. What's going on with this disproportionate response and, and the failure of the broader public to really be able to say, okay, there it is. And we have to name it and confront it for what it is. Thank you. You know, we were this summer, even we call it the long, hot summer, right? When we were protesting um, here in DC, all across the world, people were protesting for the movement for Black Lives. And my son is a fourth grader in our little classroom. We live, his school is walking distance to the White House. So we got a bunch of nine and 10 year olds and parents of all diverse races and ethnicities walking in DuPont circle, right? This is a very generally safe place. And there were tanks and there were armed guards pointing their weapons at us. And the children and the mothers were like, what is this? We're just peacefully walking. We're chanting. All we're saying is no justice, no peace, right? Like how is this threatening? There was a wall of, of um, 
of wires built around the White House for children and moms and families who are protesting every night before we would go to bed because of our proximity of our, our where we live to the White House, you would hear the helicopters buzzing because it was a nightly buzz of protesters go home, protesters go home. The level of militarization of the District of Columbia where people actually live. The White House sits in the middle of a community where people take children to elementary schools, where we go to parks. This was all militarized over wanting to have freedom for black people. Not no, we weren't making a plan to storm the Capitol. No one said, let's go zip tie and kidnap Congress folks. No one even said, let's go zip tie and kidnap the president. All we wanted was justice and peace. We do this movement out of radical black joy. We dance, we have music, we sing, we're here for the future and for liberation. So that same level of militarization, they, so they know how to do it. They are clear that patriarchal violence says, I look at you as a threat, you are, you're threatening my way of life. So I need to police your desire to be free, your personal bodily autonomy. And they don't have that same level of fear around patriarchy, around white supremacy. So they feel really complacent, like, oh, it's not gonna be a big deal. So even for those who are actively planning it, they're accountable, but the ethos, the belief in general is that we have to police black and brown people or people who want freedom. But for white folks and for white supremacy culture, they need to blow off some steam they're not really that harmful. They still don't see folks as even really being harmful. They couldn't even imagine that their fellow uh, white people were gonna go out and harm people, but black children seem harmful and seem dangerous. And that is what we have to undo. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the, I, I guess what, what we're reading again is the idea that, that violence is black and black is violence. It's not based on, really what what has traditionally threatened this republic i mean let's face it 600,000 lives were lost because one group of white folks wanted to fight to the death about their right to own black people and yet when we think about what the greatest threat to our security is when we think about who should be feared and who should not it's not the white racist armed supremacists, it's protesters, it's, it's civil rights people. Even the FBI is willing to try to put black identity extremists, which is what they call Black Lives Matter people on the same level, you know, with the Proud Boys who kill people um, or who call for people to, you know, be violently engaged and, and participate in it, which is what we saw last week. So th there's a way in which, you know, some people seem to be viewing the capital uh, insurgency is just people letting off some steam or uh, white teenagers joyriding rather than a mob that was set to, to kill people. Um, and part of that is what underscores the, the indignation and the appropriation of say her name to lift up the, the killing of one of the people who was involved in storming the Capitol. I'm curious, Kirsten, about how you read, what you see, what kind of red pill or blue pill moment is it when say her name, which, you know, was used to highlight the fact that black women have been killed by the police. And in fact, one black woman who was killed by Capitol police because she was confused and made a wrong turn and tried to escape. You know, we don't talk about we don't talk about her, but now, you know, we have to talk about, you know, a white woman who's killed in, in the incursion. What, what do you make of that? You know what? If, if I may, let me go back one second. Yeah, to, sure. To what you all just said. I want to it's, it's interesting. It's all connected. 
we know that this country is a white settler colonial project that is rooted in rape, rooted in genocide, rooted in white supremacy, rooted in anti-blackness. So for so many of us who witnessed what happened at the Capitol, it was chickens coming home to roost. We saw it and there was jokes and there was laughter from some black people because it was kind of white on white crime. But that laughter was cathartic because we know what it is to see our people in those places and have sonic grenades going off, to have the dogs, to have the batons, to have the tear gas. And we saw even the quote unquote good cops not knowing what to do because they didn't know which master to serve. They didn't know what to do. And so if we get to this point where we know that the system is not broken, but functioning exactly as intended, then we can better deal with the rest of it. Where this is not new information. We have the blueprint. We can go back to the 60s where we were talking about, okay, what, oh my God, why is the military involved? Well, again, MLK week, he talked about militarism, capitalism, and racism being in, in, you know, all intertwined. He taught us that. We know that. So that's not confusion. I remember texting you, like, did you see this? <laughs> when, they, when they had the audacity to do that, when we have Black women who are being killed by police so frequently that people, I mean, people don't still give it the credit and the, the attention it deserves. And we have black women being raped by police that still doesn't quite get the attention that it deserves. I mean, I'm so grateful for the work that you do. How dare they say her name? I wish I would. She decides to go there and be a co-architect of that violence. She decided to buy into patriarchy and whiteness and thought that it made her somebody because she was white and she was there. She did that. It will be a cold day in hell before I ever you say her name to lift up the violence of whiteness and the violence of white women. Never will. And when we talk about someone like Amanda Gorman, I hope that it's not just because she was beautiful and brown and articulate that we listen to young black girls when they say defund the police. Because what we saw is the police were there and they didn't do a goddamn thing. When black girls tell us that, why are we negotiating with the white supremacy that never compromises? They don't bargain, they don't negotiate. Why are we listening to somebody talking about hold your hand out? the same month that that happened. The GOP was the GOP before Trump got there. So if we're gonna listen to black girls and uplift black girls, I hope when it comes down to young black girls telling us what needs to happen, it's not just, oh, they're young, they don't know what they're talking about because we pick and choose when we wanna listen to black girls. So what she said was beautiful and I loved it and is what we needed and I think it was a relief. But I just also wanna make sure that when black girls say we're dying, when black girls tell us they're being raped, when black girls tell us they don't trust law enforcement, when they say all those things, when black girls tell us that we don't need one charismatic male leader at the center of a movement, don't mistake our labor for just labor and don't talk about our leadership, that we listen to them. That's what I took. You said a lot there, a lot there. So let me actually say the one name we want to say, uh, Marion Carey, yes. um, who was killed by Capitol Police with her baby in the back of the car. So if we're going to start talking about say her name, how could they kill her? The her needs to be Marion Carey. You know, it, it's distressing, not just that the say her name frame was appropriated for this purpose, but so many uh, Black folk didn't know what say her name was for. So when um, the New Orleans Saints had say her name t-shirts on, some people even black folk thought that that referred to the woman who was killed at the Capitol. The awareness still uh, isn't where it should be. And it also just is again, a recognition of how much the space we occupy 
uh, remains available for gentrification. People can come and occupy our demands for justice. They can occupy the space we live in. They can occupy the realities that, that drive our politics. And that is you know, an ongoing uh, issue that, that we want to deal with. So let's build on uh, some of the directions. I, I do want to say, to follow up on uh, what Kim Fox was talking about, that, you know, what, what we saw not only wasn't new, there was a record of many of the problems that we saw here. That record was more or less set aside largely because people don't want to address the depth in which white supremacy has infiltrated our institutions and in, in, in police in particular. So uh, Barbara, you had talked earlier about a report came out 15 years ago about infiltration uh, of white supremacists in policing and armed forces. There was not much movement on that. And then I recall there was a report that came out of the Office on Homeland Security that talked about the threat of white supremacy. That report got buried in a quasi-apology, you know, came out uh, of the Obama administration. Uh, partly because conservative politicians uh, said that this was an attack on them. I think that was pretty telling, right? That this could be suppressed because of the political implications that it might uh, create. So we know that there's a history of this stuff. We saw it. And now the question is, what's going to be done about it? So we're, we're moving into a moment where there are these twin ideas being expressed. One sort of the politics of appeasement. And the other one is the politics of building out, building on an agenda of more inclusion, but inclusion based on equity. I was surprised, uh, and Joya, I'll, I'll go to you on this. You know, there was a conversation about white supremacy and structural racism, and that's new. Yeah, I don't think we've had a president who talked about structural racism like ever, or uttered the words white supremacy, at least not critically. So that was a good thing. But um, there were a couple things missing, uh, at least from my view. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we've been working a lot on trying to get um, an intersectional approach <laughs> inside of government. I have to say, I cringe every time I'm in any meeting and they say intersectionality. I'm always like, Lord, I want a picture of Kim's face to make a meme, like to sit in the back of the room, like when you say this word, define it. <laughs> anyway, so we are looking for an ability really to think about a broader agenda. Um, there was released the Office of or Council for Gender Policy. Um, in its original iterations, the word equity was in the title, but as it was released, the word equity was gone. Um, and so there's conversations about why the word is gone, um, but we know so what, signaling- what is the Office of Gender, what do you do if equity isn't in the, I mean, I'll just say from my, my vantage point, it's one thing to say that you're, you're focusing on a subject, but what are you doing about that subject, right? If you don't have a baseline or a commitment to equity, and I mean, you know, equity between women, right? And also equity, you know, across all genders. So, so that's the other thing, right? When we say, so just like race is a social and political construct, what are we doing around really the, the construct around gender? So you know, we have a lot, we're going to have to hold all the people who've been elected accountable. Uh, we've learned over and over and over again. I am excited about, you know, my sorrow being the vice president. Yes. And I'm also want to make sure that we push really hard to hold the system accountable and that we don't 
shy away from saying words like equity and not just saying them, but then that means we can't use race neutral policies to undo hundreds of years of racist policies. You can't do gender oppressive policies with gender neutral language, gender neutral. So like, and the undergirding of this entire nation was built on a belief of a hierarchy of human beings based upon skin color. So you can't undo that with just a couple of proclamations. It's gonna take deep learning, lots of collaboration, undoing lots of lots of laws and policies and culture shift to get us out of this. Well, and I guess related, somewhat relatedly to that, there, there wasn't much of mention of patriarchy yesterday. I mean, it was, you know, the isms were kind of there and it, it just kind of feels to me that more broadly across the political spectrum, patriarchy, qua patriarchy, misogyny, sexism, those aren't, um, they don't galvanize in, in, in the way that other isms do. And so it was, it was surprising to me, partly because if you really want to understand what was going on in the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, it's not just white supremacy, it's white patriarchal supremacy. I mean, it, this was about white male entitlement to, to wig out when they didn't get their way. And if we're not naming it, I wonder what our capacity is to really be able uh, to address it. Barbara, I wanted to ask you about that. Is it, it is, is it surprising or concerning to you that the capacity to actually describe th these moments in fully intersectional terms still seems to be ahead of us rather than something that we clearly can do now? It's disappointing, of course. A couple of things also, Kim, I mean, we watched an entire inaugural that was very well produced, very well done. I mean, give, give the Biden team some credit. They know how to put on a show. I'm sorry. They did a great job for the DNC convention. And last yesterday was magnificent. It was flawless in its execution. But where was any talk anywhere by anybody about the fact that the Capitol was built by Black folks? And at that White House that everybody was waiting for people to enter, built by Black folks. Uh, you know, I thought there was some uh, real, you know, uh, you know, issues with our really having the capacity, even after we're, quote, bringing change, having a Black woman vice president who showed up as a woman in the sense that they made sure to put her in a dress this time instead of all those big old masculine lies, pantsuits they've been making the poor woman wear with all that patting on the shoulders, all the rest of it. So I was, you know, I was pleased, you know, to see her yesterday and the, realize how important it was. But I thought that should have been talked about. Because if you really want to get Americans to start thinking differently and to start really being honest about our history, that's important. I was glad to see the executive order that took down the 1776 commission. That was absolutely important. Uh, which was the commission that was lying about America's history. The irony of the 1776 commission report coming out on Monday uh, before you know, the former ex-gone president uh, you know, left, um, the irony of it was remembered that at the insurrection, one of the primary themes they were yelling and screaming was 1776. Look at what's going on right in our faces. Uh, you know, this doubling down on the nonsense while they're, quote, trying to distance themselves from it. Uh, that's, that's called culpability, that they're trying not to be uh, criminally liable. 
but at the same time, trying to have it their way of trying to tell folks we're still yours, we still got you. These are things that we got to learn. I, you know, I there were so many amazing, you know, things to be said, but I just hope that people understand that administrations are broad. There's thousands upon thousands of federal employees. And one of the things we saw is what I call internal contradictions within administrations, because we know that one of the executive orders signed yesterday, it was to uh, require an equity review of every federal agency. So how does the word equity disappear from the gender equity council We've seen these, these internal contradictions. My question to the Biden-Harris administration is try to enforce some alignment. Don't have, like we saw with the Obama administration with that, my brother's keeper. I, I really want us to you know, be very clear that these kinds of internal contradictions can and will happen, that it's gonna be so important for all of us to hold people accountable, to stay on them, to not just assume that because we quote got a good guy in, there's gonna be good stuff that will flow. No, 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 no. That's not the way the inertia of racism, the inertia of white structural supremacy works. People need to understand this. And if we have the right analysis, we can get the right results. Yes, yes, yes. Well, on the question then of equity, perhaps we, we can get some uh, traction if we're able to articulate what equity means to us, right? What we want that road to equity to look like. So let's do a a kind of a round table here and put out what, what we consider to be some of the benchmarks or the goals. So there are a lot of uh, organizations, people talking about black women's agendas going forward. I guess one question to get us started on what we want Um, And Kirsten, I'll start with you. What is the role of a Black women's agenda? I guess I'll say it this way. People might say, why do you have to have a Black women's agenda? We can have a racial equity agenda. We can have a women's agenda. We can have a worker's agenda. Why do we need uh, and why should we have a conversation about a Black women's agenda going forward? I mean, where you see Black women stand at the intersection of so many violence, state violence, gender-based violence, economic violence. Again, we talked about the Kambahi River Collective that for Black women to be free, that would necessitate all the destructions of systems that oppress us. So we need to be very clear. I, when we talk about even the drug war, for instance, one of the things that I really hope the Biden administration goes into repealing the 1994 crime bill. It's not just that Black women were peripheral beings in this war. They were locked up. Sister Susan Burden, whose son was killed by an LAPD officer, who then went into problematic drug use, cycled in and out of the prison system based on that. Black women who lose their kids in the foster care system. These communities are already over-policed and Black women fall victim to those things. We also make sure we have to have an analysis around capitalism because we know that Black women who are cash poor disproportionately face all of these things. We're talking about essential workers, but we're still arguing about if people can get $15 an hour to survive in this country, which somebody said has happened so long, we need more than $15 an hour at this point. But we can have this rah, rah, rah conversation about putting Harrogate Tubman on the $20 bill and black women don't even have like facilitate between zero and $200 in median wealth. So we have to have a conversation that not only centers 
what we experience, but centers our leadership. We also have to be very clear about who's the we, because we're not talking about Omarosa being in leadership or uh, even the Condi Rice, but we're talking about black people with good politics who are the who are leading these movements. So I want to be very, very clear when we talk about the we who we're talking about. But yeah, that means we have to start with the most harmed in any situation and put them at the center and at the leadership, the leadership level of it. Uh, Kim, what do you see? Uh, what's on the forefront um, moving forward from your vantage point? Kirsten hit it on the head. I mean, I, I would also point out that there are no Black women in the Senate right now, um, and that we only had to um, in the history of the Senate. And I, I think as a country, we get so in the moment of like heralding the thing that we finally should have done for forever, right? Like I'm incredibly proud Vice President Harris is there the fact that it has taken us centuries to get there, the fact that women have only had the right to vote for 100 years, and then Black women far less so than that. And again, the struggles that we are seeing on the ground, it, it takes too much to like acknowledge, like, let's look over here. Isn't this great that we have done that without acknowledging, like, actually, it's not enough. It hasn't been enough. And there is complicity in in not talking about that to Harold Latasha Brown and Stacey Abrams and the work that has been done around voter suppression. Isn't this great that we're here? It necessitates ignoring the history that got us there. And so I, I think we can do two things at once. I think we can absolutely be proud and acknowledge that we have a Black woman in leadership that we can hold to account that has a vantage point from our communities um, and at the same time say that the other body, because that's just the executive branch, the legislative branch and the, the upper chamber is missing that vantage point. And for all of these things that we are talking about, to, to Kirsten's point of having the right people in those spots, you have nobody in those spots. And we haven't had anyone until four years ago since Kara Mosley Braun in the mid 90s. And then when we're talking about repealing um, the crime bill from 94 and all of the attenuating issues that have come from that, there have not been black women in the space to say or do anything about it. And so I do get riled up because we are in this perpetual trick bag of celebrating the victory and not wanting to be the pessimist in the moment because it is a historic moment, but it is the trick bag that we're often placed in of like, be happy right now and not acknowledging that for all of the work that you are talking about, all of the work that we need to do around equity and centering Black women requires Black women to put us in the center. And putting all of that on the shoulders of one vice president, it is the elevation of the pressures that we feel when we get into these roles. I know this as a first, as the first Black woman state's attorney, I feel that pressure and it's not a negative pressure. That lived experience that I bring, a mother who suffered with mental health issues, who medicated with drugs, who could only live from check to check and we faced eviction and so did what she had to do. That frames my view of the justice system from a vantage point that is like real and my policies around legalizing marijuana, vacating convictions, ending cash bail. All of that comes from what happened to me and my mom and Cabrini. And the reality is, is that for a lot of these things that we're talking about, if we don't have those women with those experiences sitting in those caucus rooms, we will get marginal progress. We will get just enough. We will get enough to get us past the moment. 
And so all of this around racial equity, yeah, we have to do that because people took to the streets in ways and for prolonged periods of time after they did it two years ago, three years ago. So it's like, this is top of mind. We will very often fall to bottom of mind, back of line, because the sustainability around these issues isn't kept there. And an appeasement of, what are y'all mad at? You got a vice president. We cannot fall for that. And so my, my hope is that we are talking about the patriarchy, that we are talking about that it wasn't a gift that Joe Biden, like, look, I brought a woman on. She was eminently qualified for the position. This was not a gift for us. And by the by, we are not ungrateful to suggest that a Senate that has no Black women in it is insufficient. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the bottom line to this is precisely that, like, this is not a gift to us, right? Um, and we, sh- we can't come back, you know, again, it's, it's just um, the beginning. And it's also not just about symbolic uh, tokenism. It, it's about substantive presence. And there's a big difference between the two. Uh, and it behooves us to be able to to draw that difference and not be satisfied by you know just the the symbolism that will often be given to us in in place of policy. Uh, Joy, I w- I want to uh, circle back to you on the agenda and also just ask you to say um, you know COVID is the big backdrop to this entire conversation and the racially disproportionate consequence is of course completely and utterly predictable given racial apartheid in the medical uh, system. A lot of people don't read that correctly though. And so I want you to say something about the agenda moving forward that that you are hoping for with some reference to the wonderful piece that you uh, co-wrote about Dr. Susan Moore. Yes, Dr. Susan Moore. Every time I watch the video of her death, we don't get to see what happens inside of healthcare institutions. We frequently say the Black maternal health crisis that we are a part of um, feels familiar to police violence for in other spaces. The way that we are trained inside of medicine is to police the bodies of Black people. You hear her in, when she's speaking say things like, I had to prove my pain, right? They ordered a CAT scan. As a physician, as an OBGYN, when you are ordering a CAT scan on someone who's complaining of pain, that is your attempt to blow them off. There's nothing in a CAT scan in general that picks up pain, right? So that was his way of trying to prove that she was making things up. And she then says, they saw lymph nodes, and then I had proven my pain. Why do we have to prove our pain? And that shows up in our maternal health work, right? We know that there's data that shows Black women are less likely after having a C-section where we take your uterus, take it out of your body, sew it back up and sew you back together, we're still less likely to get pain medicine than a white woman who has the same exact surgery, right? So we have data now, the way that the Institute of Medicine historically would say, well, that's perception. Y'all are perceiving that you're being treated differently. So now we don't have to say perception anymore. We have data that shows we don't get our pain treated. We're less likely to be believed. We're even less likely to get our hypertension treated. So we knew during COVID, that means Black people are dying at home because they're less likely to be believed that they have symptoms that are warranted to get treatment or to even get a test. When it was labeled the Chinese virus, that means that people were not even getting access to treatments or tests. Like all of our racism showed up in the ways that black and brown people died, indigenous folks died from COVID-19. So back before we knew who would even be the presidential candidate, so many of my fellow colleagues inside of reproductive rights were writing the agenda of what they wanted out of a future president. And a lot of times in reproductive rights and health, we start with abortion, which is important. I was an abortion provider. I am not saying that that is a a bad thing, but that's not where we start, right? Like we're just trying to live. We need equal pay. We need 
childcare, we need transportation, we need so our health and the data from maternal health shows us that's what the countries that have better outcomes than us, they have access to paid leave, equal pay, infertility treatments, not just eugenics and y'all black and brown people shouldn't be having all these babies and you, the world population is, is too much and we you all too many of y'all. No, but what about actually investing in our ability to have children, to have fertility treatments, right? All of those things are all off the table. So we created a birth equity agenda. And since we know for fact that the history of oppression, of family planning, the history of seeing us as just as eugenics starts at the highest level of government. It starts at the White House. Then in order to fix it, it has to be done at the White House. This is a long-term commitment to undoing the harms that racism, patriarchy, gender oppression, classism has done to our bodies. So we asked for a White House Office of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Wellbeing. We've been working on this for months, working with our colleagues, thinking through how that means, what that means to the LGBTQI community, what that would mean with the maternal health community, what that means in the repro community, right? How do we see all of us as being fully human? How do we create a system and a structure that says we are deserving to be seen and to be loved and to have not just use our sexual origins for having reproduction. Most people don't have kids, right? We can just want to have sex. Where's sex ed? Where's that showing up? Where's our information about just having sexual pleasure? Where is that, right? So we should have, I just, I think about my sister who was the first surgeon general who was kicked out because she said the word masturbation. masturbation. Like she was the truth, right? What we had taught people about joy, about pleasure, and not simply stick to control, planning, eugenics, you little wild hysterical uteruses, be still. We got to get over that. So we need a White House that's deeply embedded in believing that intersectionality means looking at all the different ways that the intersections of gender-based violence, gender oppression, racism, all of those things are part of our identity. We can't pick one any day. Yes, yes. And and thank you for mentioning Jocelyn Elders. Um, yes. And thank you for, for uh, letting our listeners know about what a concrete demand is, what way we can advance um, this information. And there's a sign-on letter that folks uh, can sign on to that uh, we'll provide the link to. And on that note, we want to end our conversation with accountability measures. What are the ways and what's the attitude we need to have? in order to uh, demand accountability. I mean, we could have all the expectations in the world. We even can have the muscle to put people in office, but do we have the capacity to use our muscle to seek accountability? So we're gonna turn to that for our last few minutes. Barbara, let's start with you on that Stacey Abrams question. Well, I thought as many people thought that she would be the DNC chair. Uh, I don't understand why she's not. And because it's not just an issue of who raised money, she raised good money. Uh, so I'm really confused, you know, and not happy about, about that situation. You know, nothing against, you know, Jamie Harrison. You know, my whole thing is, and I know people look at me crazy when I say it, but Black people put folks in these offices. We created this administration. I don't care what anybody says. It, we drove the vote. We drove the fight. We did the work. We work like hell, people took risks, people don't even understand. In Southwest Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery, many people recall us, the black young man who was 25, who was uh, shot and killed by white vigilantes for jogging in a white neighborhood. He used his image and his story 
to really urge people in Georgia to vote for justice. And it was really a refrain that people heard. His aunties told this story and one auntie said that she was 53 years old and had never voted in her life until 2020. And she had a whole gaggle of children. None of them had ever voted. And it was only when her nephew was killed and she saw the lies that the prosecutor told. Remember the initial white woman prosecutor uh, who you know, covered up for these white vigilantes and told them to go home instead of charging them and investigating? Well, she got involved with the fight to remove her from office, which they did. So since black women did all this work, that we've been, you know, changing the dynamic, the political alignments in state after state, city after city. I think that we got to have the capacity to tell people we're going to snatch them up if they don't do right by us. And I mean that, that we can't be all, you know, it's nice that you got me, let me have a meeting in the White House. You invited me to the parties. I'd really love that. No, it's time for real change. Reparations has to be on the table. I'm going to, I sit as one of the co-chairs for the Judicial Selection Committee for the National Bar Association. We better see a whole lot of black judges. Yes, absolutely. And we better see a black woman Supreme Court justice. I don't wanna hear nothing from nobody. Black voters have power and they need to demand that it's respected in this era. I think there's a lot that Kamala Harris can do by influencing this administration, but it's gonna take people saying, we got your back. We need you to be bold. And we are demanding boldness in this moment. Yeah. We have, to, we have to learn the lesson that we can celebrate when we elect an administration and when we elect people that look like us. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Right? Accountability requires us to be accountable to the very issues that drove us to the polls in the first place. We can't, you know, just leave the car idling. We still have to drive it. So great direction. Um, Kirsten, what, what's your sense of accountability? What, what would you want to leave our listeners with in joining the effort to hold this administration fully accountable? One thing I want to say is that if Lift Every Voice and Sing actually becomes a contender for the national anthem, we need to all pack up. <laughs> Okay, that is not something that needs to happen. It's not something that represents Black people. It's not, it, and it goes to the point we've been talking about, about placeholders being placebos for progress. You can't give away our blues and make it a national anthem when they haven't experienced it. That's not something that represents us. I've also become comfortable with saying, I don't know. We're in the game, we're in the electoral politics arena. We voted them in, they're there. And I understand what, what, all the fight that we can do while they're there. I'm more interested at this point about what we plan on doing if they don't do it. Oh, if they don't elect a black woman, if this doesn't happen, if they don't repeal the crime bill, oh, we got, we got to fight. We're going to hold them accountable. What does that mean after we voted them in? And if they don't do it, what are we prepared to do? Because from what I've seen, we talked about this every four years. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. The GOP has been the GOP since the GOP has been the GOP. But every time it comes up to save ourselves, to save democracy, we have to vote for Democrats. We don't put any stock in really building or dismantling a, a two-party duopoly. We don't put any kind of stock in building a viable third party because that's unrealistic. 
So every four years we have this. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm open to learning. Somebody tell me how after we've handed or said, here you are, do what you're supposed to do. And if they don't do it, what do we do next? We know better. We know this is what happens. This is not new. These are lessons that we were taught and that we learned in the civil rights movement. Dr. King himself said it was a nightmare three years after he said he had the dream. We can talk like Angela Davis, freedom is a constant struggle. James Wallen talking about how much time do you want for progress and gradualism and W.E. Du Bois in 54 is talking about I'm not going to vote because it's, every party is the same. And in 2021, I really got to look in your face and you tell me how surprised you are this is happening. Get out of here. So, okay, let's say 2024, they don't do what they say they're going to do. And 2024 comes and we don't show up for the Democratic Party and the Republican gets in office and he becomes so bad that in 2028, we're organizing around getting him out and getting the Democratic Party back in. So by the time my son votes, they're telling him if he doesn't vote for a Democrat, that he's the reason why democracy is failing. I'm sick of it. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, there, there is the analogous kind of conversation. Should our progressive wing do to the Democrats what the far right uh, has done to the Republicans. And there's a lot of conversation about that. We do see the far right has been able to take over the Republican Party. Mississippi Freedom Party was established for a reason. Yeah, exactly. And I appreciate very much that. I don't know. And, and it's one of the reasons I constantly ask the question because I saw what happened when we weren't willing to fully advocate on our behalf. And many times our votes get taken for granted. So we've got to figure out this time, you know, at least um, experiment with some approaches, be conscious of the fact that we are doing it, have the conversation about accountability, if nothing else. Uh, Joya, is there anything else you want to encourage people to do to support the commission, uh, the White House uh, project that you are advocating? I have to practice saying it myself. So the White House Office of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Well-Being. So we're really wanting people to go, you know, look at the website, sign on, help us to stay engaged um, to do that. And then accountability is really, we want to be in there to hold this, this system and structure accountable, right? Um, we're built for the fight. That's what we know how to do. And so really, how do we build the infrastructure? Because government, we can't do this through philanthropy forever. We can't just keep asking people to, essentially, government has to change. Absolutely. And uh, State's Attorney Fox, what is an accountability strategy? We, we ask you, particularly as an elected official, how do we hold uh, those we elect accountable? Listen, I mean, I, I sound like a broken record. I'm, I'm like, Kirsten, it is, what is it when it doesn't work, right? And the power of incumbency, you know, my, my reelection wasn't a guarantee. People came very hard. And I think for me, without sounding self-congratulatory, there was a commitment that I made to a constituency that maybe or maybe not was going to show up. Um, the policies, again, rooted in our communities, rooted in my lived experience for a system that they are overrepresented in. I went and said, this is where I'm at. And they showed up for me. But it didn't mean that there hadn't been that push. There hadn't been that, you know, look, you got to show up back in the neighborhood. And I knew that. And they showed up in ways, I can tell you, they showed up in ways and in numbers 
that defied logic for people who spent two years coming at me with everything that they had and we showed up. And so I think, you know, I've seen it when they support you. I think to the piece that has been made though, I too had a pit in my stomach when it was like lift every voice and sing was going to be the thing. And it was like, who said that? Who said that? And why, when we look at an Amanda Gorman, who we say is going to be our future, would we even suggest the defining what that looks like for her by a symbol of a thing that was left for us, not for power, but to give ourselves some measure of ownership of our story. And then we want to give it away so that they have to say it to like, it's crazy. It's crazy. And so I think the accountability piece looks like how, you know, Barbara started this. You got to show me the numbers. Where are the Black judges? When we watch the right wing faction appoint judges who couldn't tell you all the elements of the First Amendment, appoint a Supreme Court justice with minimal experience, we hold ourselves back. We don't push our people forward enough to say this is what it needs to look like. And the intricacies of government right now is they're starting to pull together lists and starting to you know, vet people for these roles. That's when our eyes should be the biggest right now. The pageantry of yesterday is gone. It is this minutia from the issue you care about, whether it's you know, reproductive maternal health, whether it's criminal justice reform, whether it's economics, who are the people who are gonna be driving the decisions? Not just the cabinet. I mean, and I appreciate that the cabinet is diverse. And the fact that they keep talking about how diverse it looks is the part where I'm like, okay, great, 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 great. Tell me the policy. What is the policy that it is going to drive? Because that is a distraction, it's great. But this is when we should be as intentional and as thoughtful and as accountable to like, show me what it is. Who are the people that you're pulling together for these meetings? Not just who's at the table, who's missing. And I think those are the questions that we ask. It, it, it takes being unrelenting and not feeling grateful. And I just wanna go back to that. Let's not just be grateful that we are better than we were two days ago, because we were at the rock bottom and they were unapologetic about taking us there. They were unapologetic about packing the courts with people who had their agenda experience or the like. And we cannot be polite in this. We cannot, we cannot. We have to have the same fierce determination to dismantle this white supremacist patriarchy as they had in defending it. Defending it by climbing over walls, breaking windows, and coming for the vice president while the president of the United States sat and watched on TV. We have to have that same level of determination to make sure, and not the crazy, because we don't even operate like that, but stop apologizing for the fact that that is our demand and that is what is owed to us and that is what's been denied and it's not gonna be fixed with an anthem. I'm moving to Illinois to vote for Kim. Just think, there's two things I wanted to get in sure. real quick. One is the next time we talk, let's talk about what's going on with white women and the betrayal we saw and that we've been watching going on. Uh, one thing that's clear is you can talk all the diversity you want to, but the number of black people in cabinet positions is inadequate uh, considering the black vote. The other thing I want to say on the question of what is our leverage? Our leverage is 2016, folks, I'm sorry. I know we suffered a lot as a consequence of it, but the reality is that the black vote, if it doesn't think it's gonna get anything, it's gonna sit home. In 2016, we had a huge drop, almost 2 million less Black folks voting than voted in 2012. So the question to the Democratic Party 
is how bad do you want to stay in power? Now, you how know bad? what, though? We say that now, but then when the election comes around, the vote shaming starts. It's we become, we have to say- It doesn't it matter. Right. They said it out in 2016. Black folks didn't care. They said it out in 2016 because they were angry about the crime bill. Right, I guess what I'm asking is, will the people with the biggest microphones support that the next time? Oh, instead of that. vilifying it. So then that's what I'm asking. Like, will there be a collective push to say, okay, you didn't do what you said you were gonna do. So we're not gonna shame the people who stayed home because you didn't do what you said you're gonna do. Or are we gonna shame the people who stayed home? And I think, and also talking about the diversification of white supremacy necessary for its survival. So we could have a room full of black women, brown women, Asian women, trans women, everything. If they're doing the same policies that a room full of old white men are doing, it doesn't matter. Wow. Yeah. But I do want to be clear that black folks, you know, they listen to black, quote, black leaders, but they still do what they want to do. They still stay at home. Exactly. They stayed at home and they will stay at home again if they're disappointed. And so the real the real struggle is whether the solution to that is to get more articulate leadership, which is <laughs> what some people will do, or more substantive policy. There you go. We're on the side of more substantive policy, but you know, we have to continue to talk about this as well so people can see the difference between packaging and, and what's actually inside the box, right? So this is effectively it's why we're doing you know this this conversation and why the conversation wants to keep going even i want to say and i will say this um we also have to remember that the right is now going into a 50 state strategy all of the things that biden overturned yesterday all of the different directions they're just going to take it to the state level so we already know that after uh rescinding um, these orders about racial equity and requiring equity training. Now the other side has decided that they're going to go to all of the states and, and try to do on that level what they can't do nationally. So we can't lose sight of the fact that this fight is everywhere and we have to take it everywhere it exists. And so on that note, <laughs> I want to thank you all. This is exactly what we knew we needed. You know, we need to get it out there. You know, the joy, the expectation, the frustration, the anticipation, everything was part of this conversation. So I really need to thank Barbara Arnwine, State's Attorney Kim Fox, Dr. Joya Career Perry, and Kirsten West Valley. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Sheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.